trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello again, Patriots. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington for another edition of Access to Excellence podcast. You know, after George Floyd died at the hands of the Minneapolis police in May, college and university students demanded their institutions denounce racism, reaffirm institutional values, and commit to progress on racial issues. It also provided institutions of higher learning an opportunity to broaden the dialogue. In July, I announced the Anti-Racism and Inclusive Excellence Task Force And what that task force is, is a university-wide initiative that will examine the practices and traditions at Mason to determine if racial biases exist. It will also build standards of anti-racism that will keep injustices from reemerging. My goal for Mason is very simple. Mason enters this dialogue with an impressive record of anti-racism and and inclusive excellence already, but my goal is to propel it to be a national leader in this effort. My guests today are Professor Wendy Manuel Scott and Shernita Parker, who are co-chairs of Mason's Anti-Racism and Inclusive Excellence Task Force. Dr. Manuel Scott is a Mason history professor who teaches in the School of Integrative Studies. She was one of the faculty leaders behind the Enslaved Children of George Mason Project. In this project, students help excavate the experience of those enslaved by George Mason at his home, Gunston Hall. That groundbreaking research was the catalyst for the memorial to the enslaved people of George Mason, which will open on our Fairfax campus by the start of the fall 2021 semester. In 2017, Dr. Manuel Scott was recognized with the inaugural Alcal Family Medal for Excellence in Diversity and Inclusion. Shernita Parker is our Assistant Vice President for Human Resources here at Mason, where she provides leadership in talent acquisition, employee relations, organizational development and learning, and faculty and staff engagement. She has teams working together to support faculty and staff throughout George Mason University. For this task force, more than 130 faculty, staff, and students were involved. This task force is comprised of many of Mason's experts in the area of racial justice. The focus has been on university policies, practices, training, development, research, student voice, curriculum and pedagogy, and campus and community engagement. Essentially, it's the whole campus. I want to welcome both of you all. How y'all doing? Great. Happy to be here with you. Absolutely. Excited to have today's conversation. Well, look, this is great. I've gotten to spend good time with both of you throughout this process, and I'm going to be the first to say this effort could not be in better hands. And so I've gotten a chance now to see a snippet of the recommendations that have come out. We've now started to have discussions about them. But I will tell you, you all have exceeded expectations on those. And I am just ecstatic and humbled and grateful that both of you are a part of this effort. 
Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. And certainly recognize that um, this is such a great opportunity for me. I'm just going to say in terms of being able to work closely with Wendy and so many of our colleagues who have put blood, sweat and tears into this work. And so really excited that your even first response is positive in terms of the direction we're heading, all this being accomplished. We're in this. This has been work that so many of our students and our colleagues, they have, as Trinita noted, and really invested their blood, sweat and tears, their real soul into this. And so to have the opportunity to work with, to sit with, to think and to dream with our faculty, staff and students, around what Mason can be, what the best version of Mason can look like and feel like. It's a privilege to do this work. So thank you for the invitation. And our sleeves are still rolled up and (laughs) are still in it. So this is good. Let me jump right in. So after the George Floyd murder and the Breonna Taylor murder and the Ahmaud Arbery murder, there was this explosion, right? And it happened at a time when people were kind of stuck at home, right? The institutions had shut down, people were separated, and there were just mass protests. And there were mass protests in the midst of a pandemic, which was amazing to me. People literally, there's no other way to say it, they'd risk their lives in a way in which no other cohort of people in the country have risked their lives before. This was not just about worrying about police or worrying about groups who were anti the effort attacking them and coming after them. This wasn't about fear of the alt-right or the Ku Klux Klan. People put themselves in harm's way relative to contracting a deadly virus. And I would contend to you that there probably were a number of people who contracted the virus after those protests, without question. And to our credit, universities all over the country started to highlight, we're going to do this in this area. We're going to do that. We're going to put these mechanisms mechanisms in place. If you didn't do that, people look at you cross-eyed. What's wrong with you? You've got to do something. So there's quite a bit happening nationally, this whole concept of whole host of universities rushing to put in anti-racism, inclusive excellence related programs and initiatives in place. More than 250 of them nationally came about right after George Floyd's death. Tell me something about what you know nationally and some of the good things you may be hearing and how do those contrast with what we're doing here at George Mason University? The shifts happening within institutions actually extends even beyond the U.S., right? I mean, there are schools in Canada that are hiring some of their first Black professors and adding anti-racism initiatives and exploring anti-indigeneity. So it's also, I think, useful to note that this shift actually extends far beyond just institutions in the United States. It really is, I think, a bit of a global awakening. Institutions are having to grapple with that. And the area that I'm most familiar with is the way in which institutions are thinking about the relationship between higher education and the past, thinking about the way in which institutions have been connected to slavery and racial segregation and even removal of indigenous people from land and reconciling that with who they are as institutions in the 21st century, coming to a place where they can see this 
entanglement between the past and the present. So UVA, along with Georgetown and other institutions back in 2014, they actually started a consortium, university studying slavery. But after 2020, a lot of their work continued to, again, think about what does it mean to be a university studying slavery and then also to want to be an institution that practices anti-racism and creates a more inclusive learning environment for all. Mm -hmm. Or we might think about Harvard University. They recently hired an individual who's going to be the university librarian for anti-racism. So there's this clear kind of recognition that what we teach and what we learn also, we've got to ask messy questions about that. And the work that we need to do, not just in terms of faculty in the classroom, but even in terms of our librarians. So for me, I think it's exciting to see the various ways institutions are grappling with systems of inequality that existed in the past and continue to have a footprint in the present. You know, I can highlight some of them that I know about. I know Clemson University removed the name John C. Calhoun, who held that slavery was a positive good from its honors college. And Western Carolina dropped the name of the segregationist former governor, Clyde Huey, from its auditorium. And closer to home, James Madison announced that it was rechristening three campus buildings named for Confederate military leaders. So those kinds of things are definitely happening Georgetown students last year voted to add to their student fees to fund a scholarship for individuals that were held in bondage by Georgetown University. So any of those descendants can now have access to this scholarship. And the students voted to make that happen. So you're right, it's happening at different institutions in different ways. And in many cases, it is inspired by the student body. No, this is good. So people who feel that George Mason University is doing something out of the ordinary, is doing something out of character, those institutions can just literally look down the street and they will see another institution somewhere else. You know, I had a faculty member, it's real interesting, quote me, he said, you know, we need to be more like he named a really well-established institution in the Northeast. He said, we need to be more like this institution. And then he highlighted, we need to be more like the University of Chicago. They've done this because they're an advocate of free speech and we need to be more about that. So I just said, well, I wonder, did they do anything in anti-racism inclusive excellence? So I just go on the website and I was blown away by the program that they put in place this faculty member obviously didn't look to see because what they had was actually more extensive than what we've put forward thus far. This is part of a movement and Mason's a part of that. We're in good company. From the Ivies to many different other institutions, there is a recognition that if you are going to be an innovative, an inclusive institution of higher education, You've got to be willing to have a conversation around the systems and policies and procedures that exclude. That is what you are called to do as a 21st century institution. I feel like we are redefining what radical means. And I think that so often people who are pushing against and questioning, you know, what we're doing and if we're doing too much or we're doing the wrong thing around this effort really do see it sort of as it's radical. And I think that so many of the examples that both you and Wendy provided point to what other institutions are doing 
how much they're doing, the depth of the work that they're doing. And it really does make us realize that we need to redefine what radical is because we're doing the right thing. We're moving in the right direction. And that's really what it comes down to. What makes Mason different from this host of institutions who all came forward and put initiatives in place? I think for me, the one thing that makes Mason different is, is, is exactly sort of what you are referencing in terms of the urgency that people felt to actually put themselves in the arena, to have their voice be heard and really speak out against all the pain, all of the challenge, all of the crises that sort of brought us to this moment. I think Mason has always been poised to do just that, to not simply be about the conversations. The conversations are important. The research is important. All of those things um, are important, but at some point there has to be action. And I think that's always a commitment that we have at Mason to take action. Um, and you yourself in charging the task force talked about conversations. Those are great. And we'll continue to have them because things are constantly evolving and changing, but we have to act. And so really creating a strategic plan about what that action looks like to really address the situations, that's I think what makes Mason different because I think we do that consistently in a way that does not ever leave us idly sitting by watching, but actually being in, putting ourselves into the issue, putting ourselves into the arena and really attacking problems. I appreciate you taking us back to the genesis of this 21st century awakening. And I think about, now I was teaching in May and in June, and students came into the Zoom space of the classroom and their hearts were broken, fractured. They wept, openly wept in class. Students identify as Latinx, discussing what it felt like to see brown children caged. Asian American students for the first time discussed feeling anti-Asian racism and how deeply that cut them. And African-American students, students who identify as part of the um, Black diaspora, discussing that they thought maybe America was something different and how deeply it hurt and how it felt to see life drain out of the essence of a Black man. And so holding space for our incredibly diverse student body, allowing them the space to both grieve and then also intellectually engage. I think that's what we are tasked with doing as an incredible institution of higher education. I think having the diversity of experiences and identities in our classrooms at Mason makes us unique and makes us special. It means that our students not only learn from our incredible faculty, faculty, but that they also are gifted with the stories, the narratives of their classmates. And they can be transformed not just by the content introduced by faculty members, but by holding the truths that their classmates offer to them. And I think that makes us incredibly special as an institution. And I also think it means that we have a great responsibility. You know, a big reason for creating this podcast is to talk to our students, to A, encourage them 
to tackle the grand challenge issues of our time, of which this is one, right? But also to give them concrete steps, concrete things that they can do in order to address many of the challenges that they see around them. So what can students do, perhaps on a grassroots level, to help affect change? What should they be engaged in right now? That's the question that I I love. And I think actually your question can also be extended out beyond just our students to our staff and our faculty and to administrators as well. What we can do is determine that we are going to create space for individuals to show up as full human beings, that we're going to create space for individuals to be heard, that we are going to create space to engage in critical thinking and intellectual curiosity. And often that work of creating space, that work of intellectual curiosity and critical thinking, it it often sounds like it's an easy thing to do. But in fact, I would suggest that it is really quite hard because sometimes the questions asked, the evidence provided, the stories told, the narrative shared, unsettle us. But that is the work of an institution of higher education. I always tell my students on the first day of class, my job is to make you uncomfortable, to make you rethink something that you were so certain about before. And so what I hope all of our students feel compelled to do is to do the messy work of creating space for folks to share, but also to do that critical thinking, to do research, to be innovative, and to imagine not just an institution, but to imagine a world that maybe we can't even actually see today. And so they have to bring all of the incredible skills and tools and knowledge that they gain at Mason, and they have to leverage that in doing that incredible work of imagining a world and a society that's not quite perfect today, but imagining something more beautiful, more inclusive on the other side. Just sort of piggybacking on some of what Wendy shared. I certainly think for me, so in so many ways, the students are the fuel of the fire, the, the inspiration, and they can be the ones to keep bringing us back to some of the very difficult conversations that we need to be having, keep bringing our attention back to some of the things that we can become sort of numb to in the sense of, okay, it's this is the way it's been. This is how things have been. This is how we've done things. And really making sure that we consistently as all members of the community, so all faculty, staff, and students are saying, you know what, we need to question that. We need to be looking more closely at things. We need to be really holding ourselves accountable to ensure that if we are going to speak to values of well-being, of thriving together, um, of acting with integrity, of putting our students first, all of those things, if we're going to do that as a community, then there are actions and behaviors that are a part of that, and we all need to be holding each other responsible to those actions and those behaviors. And so for me, it's, it's really about this really awesome partnership or collaboration or synergy that happens when we're all working together as a community and members of the Mason community to keep us honest, to keep us looking and questioning and making sure that we're each being the best version of ourselves to allow for the space of creating the best university possible for everyone. No, this is really interesting. And I want to thank you both for outlining concrete things our students can do, because that's 
that's important. I know it's a cliche. We say it all the time. The students are our future, but we actually live in a gerontocracy, okay? And those of us of age don't want to relinquish enough to the students, to our young people, to fulfill the destiny, right? If you go back to what happened in the 1960s, it was led by young people. MLK was in his 20s. Malcolm was in his 20s. You get what I'm saying? Stokely Carmichael, those individuals were in their team. They were college students, right? John Lewis was a college and a young one at that. He was 16 when he got started in this. Oftentimes, folk don't necessarily move out of the way to create a space, as Wendy would say. And so I hear you saying that they have to create a space in order to get involved in this thing, and we have to help them create that. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Yes, 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 yes. It's so wonderful that you brought up MLK. I've been thinking about him a lot recently. I returned to a speech that he gave in 1963 at um, Western Michigan University. And in this speech, he talked about that so often in society, we ask people to accept the status quo, to accept that this is how things are. And he said that, look, I'm not going to adjust myself to the realities of poverty. I'm not gonna adjust myself to racism. And he argued in this speech that in fact, he was going to be creatively maladjusted to systems and structures of inequality and exclusion. And he actually argued that what we needed was an international association for the advancement of creative maladjustment. But I think about his idea of being creatively maladjusted as one could argue, it certainly creates a longer history when we think about what we are trying to do at Mason in terms of anti-racism and inclusive excellence. It means that we have to be maladjusted to structures and systems and policies that are not inclusive, that don't allow students and faculty to thrive. And so there is something to be said for the work that those great civil rights activists like a Martin Luther King Jr. and Septima Clark and a Rosa Parks and all of those folks that we often name, but we forget that their work was a commitment really to being maladjusted to systems of exclusion. No, I get it. I get it. Let me let me bring this home a little bit more. Let me deal with some of the, I don't want to use the term backlash. I think it's a too strong of a word, but some of the debate that I'm hearing in our community, some of the debate that I'm getting from other people on our campus who look at this effort and they say, I don't get it. They look at the fact that we have a truth, racial healing and transformation campus center, one of the first in this nation. They look and they say, you got this Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution, one of the nation's few schools dedicated to social justice, peace, and one of the very best. They look at the fact that we're the largest and most diverse student body in the state, and we are a majority minority campus. They look at our black student population and how it's among one of the best academic performers for a large group of African-American students. When you look at their graduation rates, when you look at degree attainment, and when you look at persistence and the like, and they look at the fact that I'm here, that you have a black president. And they look at all of that and they say, what in the world do we need a task force for? Why do we need this? Mason is doing fine on its own. 
home? Help me to answer that question. So answering, I mean, that, that's, yeah, that's a big, big one. Yeah, you, you're thinking about it, aren't you? I, it's, it's, <laughs> it, that's, a, that's a big question. You, well, you, you well, well, look, the, re, the reality is we've done some great things that's right. already as a campus. So why do we need it? But I think, you know, I think we need it because certainly what we have realized as we have the conversations, as our attention is brought to what we really look at at Mason is we see those as symptoms of the problem, but the root cause of the problem is much larger and it's deeper. And so I feel so much of what the task force is about and what it's being asked to do is it's asked to look at the real systemic nature of the problem. And then that requires us doing more than just the surface of sort of checking some of the boxes to say that, okay, there's diversity here and these types of things are happening. But have we actually peeled back the layers to really understand, identify and understand the root cause and to look at the systemic aspect of racism, to look at the, the systemic practices of exclusion. The task force is being called and is needed for that because we can't stop at the surface. We can't stop at really just that first layer if we want to have true transformational change and create a space for everyone, a space where all belong and are included. That's the thing that drives and fuels the task force. It's to recognize that peeling back the first layer doesn't get you to the real problem, the real issue won't allow you to make the change and transformation that's needed. Yeah, I think you're onto something there, Shanita. One way to begin that conversation is to remind folks that racism as one structure of oppression, one way to think about it at least, is that it's about a, a hierarchy, right, of human value. And some folk are at the top of that hierarchy and some folk are at the bottom of that hierarchy. And that hierarchy of human value has a negative impact on all members of our society, or in the case of George Mason, it has a negative impact on all members of our community. And so the work of disrupting that hierarchy is never done, right? Justice-centered work is never done. It is worthwhile work, and we hope to make progress. We have made progress, but it is an ongoing task and commitment that we must make as individuals and that we have made as an institution. And so if we believe in all folk being able to fully inhabit who they are, right, and spread their arms wide and dance under the sun, then we have to do this justice-centered work to disrupt these hierarchies. Is every student, faculty, and staff member welcome and respected as a full equal in this community of higher learning. Do we have equal representation? Do we have clear representation of African-American, Latinx, faculty and staff in our organizations to help provide adequate role models to students regardless of discipline? What I'll share is that I always have prided myself on being a faculty member that if students need to come into my office and close the door, I'm there for them. And I've been at Mason 18 years now, and I continue to offer my office, now it's a virtual space, to students. And I've heard heartbreaking stories. And so while we have certainly made incredible improvements, I think as an institution, I would not say that every single one of our students, no matter their racial identity, their religion, 
their sexuality, their gender, their documented or undocumented status, their access to housing or food. I wouldn't say that all of our students experience 100% a sense of being home and safe and seen and heard. We will always have work to do. That should not scare us from this path. We must be courageous and we must have fortitude because as long as students come into my office, right, there is someone there that we can put our arms around as an institution and do better. Absolutely. And I would say the same for faculty and staff. I too, um, in terms of the work that I do and, you know, having been able and had the privilege of being a part of uh, this community and this role for 10 years at Mason for 18, and really do find that so often that is not the experience for our faculty and staff. That yes, it is aspirational that all are welcome and all can show up as their whole selves, but that is not their experience. And so, so while there may be indicators as the people who maybe this effort doesn't resonate with them or they're questioning the need of the effort, it may not be their experience and they're taking those indicators as some correlation to the fact that there's no problem. That's not the case for all of so many faculty and staff that I have talked with, worked with. And so that is the very reason we need the efforts. As Wendy said, it's really about the fact of remaining vigilant and recognizing that it's ongoing, long-term work. You know, it's interesting uh, that you bring this forward. See, if I look at our data, we don't have representation in many areas of African-American, Latinx, faculty and staff. When I look at the data, we definitely don't have that in our leadership ranks. Very few organizations at our institution can say that they're truly representative in terms of the individuals who are in those positions. The reason I harp on this one is really important. I went back and I think I shared, I might have shared this information with you all. I went back into the university archives and I pulled information because I, I wanted to ask myself the question, well, what was this institution like in the beginning? What was it like for all people? And I found some things that was really interesting. A, the institution grew up out of the Black community. That This plot of land that we sit on at one time, the Black community surrounded the institution. And that very community did not feel welcome at the institution that surrounded its borders. This is in the public record. We've made progress on the number of students because that was also an issue, that students were not welcome. And so this is an area where Mason has made tremendous progress. We have many more students here and we got to give the institution credit where credit is due. But they also, the other thing they highlighted is that the levels of faculty aren't representative of the communities in which they serve. We actually still have not reached that promise and definitely haven't reached it in levels of leadership. Yes, I'm here, but I'm actually one person. We have a large number of administrators on this campus. There were other issues relative to treatment, and that's the piece you all are talking about in terms of how do people feel about the environment here? Do they feel welcome? It's interesting. I, I have been taking this whole week to spend time with our students, to engage them, all students across the board, 
just to engage and talk to them and ask them, how is it going? Where are you engaging? What are you feeling? What are you seeing? And these were different groups from all over. I heard from Jewish students that they have felt a persistent increase in negative treatment that they had been receiving. I heard from Asian students, the same thing. You know you hear some of that stuff from Black students, but to hear it from these other groups really helps me to contextualize that this task force has work to do. Yes, 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 and yes. And I think Absolutely. I think what you are saying reveals the reality that while Mason certainly gets some things right and we do them well and we can pat ourselves on the back, we do not exist as an island. And so what happens out in the rest of the world shapes who our students are and it shapes how they experience their time with us. So when there is anti-Asian racism that folk are encountering, that also means our students are impacted. When there are other incidents of racism across the nation, it very likely means our students are impacted by that. And it also means that some of that, right, is also a part of our institution as well. We have to remain our ear to the ground in terms of being able to hear and listen. That is important. I think your willingness to sit with students and tell them to give you the unvarnished truth of what being a student at Mason feels like for them, I think that's powerful. But then we have to be prepared to hold their answers and then go about doing this work that you've tasked the RE task force with doing, which is that find where these structures, these policies, these systems exist, and then how can we disrupt those inequalities and how can we create something for our entire community? So how's it going? So you all have been involved in this in the early stages. All right. So how's it going? How do you feel things are going with the task force, with what you're putting together? Give me some insight. Give the community some insight. I think it's a fair question. And for me, I'm always thinking about members of our community. And I'm only one of so many other folks that have been doing critical work to create meaningful transformation on our campus. So when I think about someone like a, a Creston Lynch, who has been working around building and creating this Truth and Racial Healing Center, he was in that before May 2020. When I think about individuals who've been deeply invested in imagining a course that will be available for all of our students, I know that Lauren Lauren Catanio has been deeply invested in Kim Eby and helping to give life to that course. When I think about the work with the research in terms of the enslaved people of George Mason Memorial, I think about my colleagues, George Oberly and Benedict Carton. There's so many individuals that pre-2020 were in it, not because someone assigned them to do it, not because someone said, let me add this to your overflowing cup of responsibilities, but individuals who were already in this meaningful work. And so your decision to create the RE task force helped to pull all of this wonderful effort and energy together and to provide the support so that we could leverage the incredible skill, the incredible work that's already been done and move forward with a level of focus. 
I think that's required to really achieve our big goals and our big dreams. And so for me, when I think, okay, well, how is it going? Folk are still exhausted. And yet... But but, hey, wait, wait, wait. How are you doing? I'm tired is how you feel it. I'm asking, how how is it going? How is it going? It, um, well, that's what I'm saying, right? If you are tired and exhausted, but you know that the people who are in the work with you also believe that it is worthwhile, then the work continues and you get on a call, a Zoom call, and you look at somebody else and you're like, this matters. And so people continue to come up with innovative solutions to the challenges that face our faculty, our students, our staff, because they know that it must be done. It must be done. And I think we have to be able to hold two truths, which are folk are tired and exhausted because they've been in this for a while right. and they are not quitters. They remain dedicated and committed and courageous because this work has to be done and we've got to get it right. Absolutely. And I agree because for me, and when you ask me, how's it going, it's going I feel like we're mobilized and that's what we needed. I feel like there are so many folks, uh, as Wendy is saying, that really when you look out, they've been doing this work. They have been passionate about this. They've been doing and making a difference in all of these pockets across the university and the cohesion now and the focus sort of has mobilized, I feel, the group in a way that there is absolutely no question that people dig deep. And that's for transformation and change efforts. That's what you need. That's the secret sauce, so to speak, that even when you are extended, even when you've been in the work a long time, even when you are tired, you still dig deep because you know it matters the work matters and you matter and you being in the work matters. And so you're ready to go. And I feel like that's where we are. And it's for me is really energizing to be able to co-chair this with Wendy, to work with all of these colleagues in ways that I wouldn't always get to in my role. And really just to be able to vibe off of that energy. We're tired and exhausted. We're mobilized, we're energized, and we are committed. That's how we are. That's how we're doing. You keep in it. You don't leave your colleagues. You stay in the room. You stay at the table. You keep having the conversations until you get it right. You now have your first set of recommendations done. Talk a little bit about what you all feel about those recommendations and what you think they will enable the campus to do. And then talk a little bit about how you plan to get those recommendations out to the public. So in terms of maybe starting, I might flip it a little bit in terms of how we're going to get the recommendations out to the public, because that certainly is a critical aspect of engaging the rest of the Mason community in the conversation. And so as we look forward to next Tuesday, the 23rd, we'll have our first of two town halls that are currently scheduled. And that's the opportunity and and the forum in which committees will be able to present their three initial recommendations. And in terms of the work that the committees have done, the conversations they've had to formulate these three initial recommendations, we feel really strongly that it's been a very intentional deep dive to every aspect, whether it is the training and development committee, whether it's looking at the curriculum and pedagogy committee, each of those committees has really taken a deep dive and identified what are three initial recommendations that are to the core of addressing some of the challenges that we've identified. Let's start there and then make recommendations that 
are very specific as to here is the issue, here is the challenge, here is our proposal on how we actually will address that challenge. And here's how we're going to measure the way in which we succeed and be accountable for those actions. And so I feel that all of that work that they've done has been, again, very strategic and very intentional around being able to bring to the university community those recommendations and engage them in the conversation and get feedback because we've landed here and we need to now hear from the university community. Does this feel right? Does this resonate? Is there something different that we need to be looking at? Does it need to be enhanced in some way? And so I feel like we're moving into that next phase, which is only going to continue to build on the momentum and allow us to move forward to the actions that then will be a part of implementation and the real change coming about for the university. If you look at what happened immediately following the aftermath of George Floyd's death, public support for Black Lives Matter was well over 70%. And everybody, I mean, Major League Baseball had a Black Lives Matter emblem. In the NBA, playing basketball in a bubble, all had Black Lives Matter emblems. And companies were just giving donations to individuals in the Black Lives Matter space in record amounts. You had all of this great stuff happening relative to this. You fast forward by the beginning of the fall semester. I remember going back, looking at the same Pew study that had a very high level of support, had already dipped down to about 55% support for Black Lives Matter, and now it's below 50%. One of the things we have to discuss, you know, as we start to wrap this up, is longevity. How do we keep the momentum going? How do you keep people, even those that are, as you stated, uh, Wendy, working in this and excited about it, but also tired? How do you keep them involved? How do we keep moving the ball in this level of work? I think I have two thoughts. One, for those individuals who are tired, I think seeing success, seeing things that we dreamed of five years ago actually exist, right? Have life. I think that will fill them and inspire them to keep going forward. And I know it is also the case that, generally speaking, change is never easy. And doing the transformative work that we are all engaged in means that folk will feel uncomfortable. And I suppose my response is the same thing that, that I, you know, I say to my students at the beginning of, of any semester. My request is that when you feel uncomfortable, you still stay in your chair. You still keep asking questions. You still keep sharing your thoughts, what you're feeling. Tell us why you feel uncomfortable. As long as you stay in the chair and in the room, we can continue to do what we are tasked with doing as an institution of higher education. Just stay in it, even when the waters get a little bit bumpy. And so I feel that even though some folk may not completely agree, that's all right. Just stay in your chair, stay in the room, and we will continue to have dialogue. And that is important work that is also part of this process. I would only add that it feels like in terms of the long-term effort and needing people to stay in that and stay motivated by it, it really does go back to the question you posed to us earlier um, and your comments around keeping students involved. I mean, students are involved in this effort, I feel like in a way that maybe they haven't been in others. And so 
really that their active engagement and participation is so much a source of some of the momentum and a fueling of the passion for the rest of us. And holding us accountable, again, that's important. Holding us accountable to keep moving forward, to keep working towards the change. That youth also brings an energy, a spiritual energy. You ever notice how young coaches look? (laughs) These guys. You're right. Look at them, they're like 80 years old. They're still out there coaching. And they look young and some of them still run out on the field. It's an amazing thing to see a 70-year-old man running out there who looks like he's 55 or 50. There's something about that youth and that energy. And Out of doubt. Engagement. And, Always. And allowing it to permeate your spirit. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you know, you, you noted, um, you know, John Lewis and... MLK and all those, you're right, they were young. They created Nick. They pushed the movement in a direction that some of the the older generation, they didn't even know the sit-ins were about to happen, right? And, And they transformed our world and we are the beneficiaries of that energy, of that courage of that justice-centered work that they did. And so I think you're right. Our students, they have so much to offer us, and we have to be willing to listen to them and channel their passion and their energy. And I like to think we're going to be in good hands with this generation. I, too, believe that. And I will tell you, you two have given all of us a great deal to think about. And so I want to thank you, not just for doing this podcast, but I want to thank you for the work that both of you have done in terms of our anti-racism and inclusive excellence initiative. I do believe it will set Mason apart and it will position us as one of the thought leaders from a university perspective in this space. Thank you. Thank you for being a wonderful leader and partner in this work. Most definitely. Absolutely. Shanita, yes, radical. Or again, we go back to Martin Luther King Jr. We are being maladjusted. That's right. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's going to wrap it up here at Access to Excellence. I would, again, like to thank Professor Wendy Manuel Scott and Assistant Vice President Shanita Parker for their time and expertise. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.